This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Despite our wealth as a nation, far too many children as infants, toddlers, grade schoolers, and adolescents experience poor outcomes in their emotional, mental, and physical health. Initially, this is seen in high rates of infant mortality and low birth weight babies. The bad news continues for the alarmingly high rates of kids who are obese, they get pregnant, they contract a sexually transmitted disease, they smoke, binge drink, abuse drugs, whatever it is, develop an eating disorder, and all that. Sadly, many of the adult men that young people look to, including their fathers, are poor role models. They're ill-equipped to help kids avoid or correct unhealthy behaviors. However, the truth is that many fathers can and do lead by example. They can be caring, attentive, and inspirational beacons for their children's healthy lifestyle. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with pioneering researcher William Marsilio about the research that he's done that highlights the value of treating dads as central players in what he calls the social health matrix, which can serve both healthy children and those with special needs. And he's got some great thoughts for us about how schools, healthcare facilities, religious groups, and other organizations can help dads make a positive imprint on their family's health, fitness, and well-being. I'm Armin Brott. It all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office, ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is William Marsilio, who's the author of Dads, Kids, and Fitness, A Father's Guide to Family Health. Bill, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's glad to be here. Why the focus on just the dad? And I, I ask that knowing the answer, kind of, because I'm, I'm familiar with some of your other work on, uh, on fatherhood. But um, why, why, at this point, focus on specifically the dad as opposed to the mom? Well, I have a history of research that's focused on fathers, so uh, part of it is uh, just personal for me in that I've tried to narrow in on men's involvement in children's lives, both as fathers as well as as youth workers in the community who are working with kids. Historically, there's been a lot more research on mothers and children, though in the last couple of decades there's been quite a bit of research on fathers. and. In this particular case, in terms of health, uh, even with recent materials uh, and the growing interest in academic research on fathers and kids, there isn't much on fathers' involvement in children's health care-related issues or to what extent fathers are involved in health and fitness-related concerns for kids. So there was a big gap in the literature, and that fit in nicely with my agenda for wanting to focus more on how fathers can become more nurturing in their children's lives. And so I, I just thought it was a neat fit for 
what I wanted to do and what I felt needed to be done uh, in terms of moving us forward and creating a, an agenda for getting men more involved in a positive way in dealing with uh, their kids' health and fitness issues. You know, I've been doing a lot of stuff with fatherhood over the over the past couple of decades, and and one of the things, the conversations that I had with people often, or at least early on, was saying that fatherhood is definitely a health issue. I mean, it's a health issue that there's research you probably know this way better than I do about th- that when dads are involved with their kids, they tend to take better care of themselves, roughly, and that it also helps the kids as well, that when dads are involved, that the kids are going to be getting more exercise, the kids are going to be doing a lot of good things. So it's it's a health issue on a, on a variety of levels, not just looking at one side or the other. Yeah, I think that's important. There's definitely a uh, reciprocal kind of process here, and that fathers can help out kids, and actually kids uh, who are taken care of by their dads can uh, promote fathers more greater attention to their own health, and one of the things I found in my research, for example, in terms of the kinds of questions that I ask people, I ask them to go all the way back to when they were kids themselves, so I got a sense of what their family history was like, but then I moved them forward to when they first uh, became uh, or knew that they were going to become a father and how that influenced their life, and there were a number of men who talked about, not all of them for sure, but a number of men talked about having some bad habits prior to learning about their partner's pregnancy, and then changing their habits, or, or at least moving in the positive directed direction towards trying to minimize some of the bad things they were doing. And in some cases, it wasn't uh, necessarily a health-related thing, uh, like smoking or drinking, though men talked about that, but sometimes it was just risk-taking behaviors mm-hmm. of uh, driving a motorcycle or doing bungee jumping or parachuting or other th- uh, not wearing a seatbelt when they drive, and a number of men talked about how the thought of becoming a father uh, was a wake-up call for them, and they began to change their own life experience. So that was early on, even before the child was born. And then later on, uh, many men talked about how having children influenced their own level of activity. Though sometimes it works in the opposite direction as well, in that the time it takes for fathers to be actively involved in their children's lives can sometimes limit take away take away time from the gym right so you get dad bod which is like the horrible expression but i guess it's out there anyway Uh, so what was it for you did you have a particular moment when it hit you uh in terms of being actively involved (laughs) in my son's life or no in terms of of saying Whoa. I mean, I'm just giving an example. I mean, it, I remember very distinctly in I could probably find the intersection that I had gone through a yellow light and thinking to myself, I can't do this anymore. I've got people who are counting on me, which is exactly what you're talking about. I mean, you know, the, that that moment when you realize that the, the world is a little bit of a bigger place now than when it was just you by yourself or you and, and your partner. Now that you've got a little one on the way. Um, did you have a moment like that where it hit you all of a sudden that, whoa, you, you've got to make some major changes? Uh, not really. I think mine was more because I was very health conscious before I had my second son. And, um, I mean, throughout my life I've been very health conscious. I think I became increasingly more so as I got older. But then when I had my second son, and my sons are 31 years apart, so there was a lot of growing up in between having my two sons and the second one. I was uh, very active and health conscious at that time, but then it 
it just was reinforced. And I realized, as I write in the book, that when I went out to cycle, I wasn't just putting on my helmet for myself, but I was putting on my helmet for my family and you know my youngest son. And when I put on sunscreen, I was doing that just not for myself, but for him as well, indirectly. So I began to maybe sense that a little bit more, but I was doing those things already. So I didn't really change my behavior much because I felt like I was pretty health conscious already, but it reinforced it and it gave me even more reason and motivation to do the things that I felt were important anyway. Why is it, do you think, that health issues are kind of looked at almost as women's issues and that dads have been somewhat left out of the discussion? Well, one of the main reasons it's historically been connected to our construction of masculinity or different versions of masculinities in the United States and elsewhere, for that matter. So to the extent that men have historically defined manhood as being stoic and strong and not needing attention and being able to do it alone and being independent, they become less open to the idea of needing help and wanting help and don't want to admit vulnerability. And so this deals with physical health as well as emotional health, psychological health. So women are far more likely to seek counseling as well as uh, regular physical uh, you know, exams from a doctor than, than men are. And I feel that the, the biggest factor in all of this is how boys are raised and then become young men and then become older men and link manhood and expressions of manhood and being manly to their ability to cope with physical difficulties and not to whine about it and sort of, sure. you know, there are a lot of colloquial expressions of sucking it up and it's connected to the sports world. And Yeah, big boys don't cry, right. man up. Yeah, yeah, those are, are certainly out there. So do you think that there's a difference in the dad's role <clears throat> whether the child is a girl or a boy? Well, there can be. Um, in terms of my own research, I feel like men were actively involved in both their uh, daughters as well as their sons. And so the men I interviewed, I didn't selectively just choose fathers who had sons. So uh, the fathers, both well, some of them had just daughters. Some of them had uh, both sons and daughters. And some had just sons. But I had plenty of men who were involved very actively in their daughters' lives in a variety of ways of helping them uh, exercise and turning them on to exercise, exercising with them on occasion and, you know, cooking with them or, or taking them to the, the store and telling them about nutrition. And one father I remember talking about, his, and he was a non-resident father, his, his daughter actually lived out of state and she would call him when she was in the grocery store and ask him questions about uh, different food purchases. And he was a, a pretty health-conscious sort of guy. And so she looked at him as her you know, main voice in terms of helping her to eat healthy. And she was, I think, 16 or 17, 15, 16, 17 at the time. Um, so those kinds of involvements uh, are, are clearly a part of what men do. The extent to which uh, girls are more involved in sports these days, though it's kind of plateaued to some extent, but over the last couple of decades, it, it's been at a relatively high level, and so lots of fathers are actively involved in introducing their daughters to, to the world of sports, unlike earlier generations where they were primarily only introducing their sons. So 
a lot has changed on that front. And men are coaching some of their girls' soccer teams um, or softball teams or other teams that they might be on. Obviously, there are some things that fathers may be less involved with than uh, mothers in terms of uh, sort of concerns about menstrual health and and so forth. But there are some fathers who have talked about you know be, playing an active role in introducing their children, especially if they're single dads, uh, talking to their daughters about those kinds of experiences mm-hmm. and what it's going to be like and taking care of what they need to know about uh, becoming sure. fertile and right. things like that. Talking with William Marsilio, who's the author of Dads, Kids, and Fitness, A Father's Guide to Family Health. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Bill. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with William Marsilio, who's the author of Dads, Kids, and Fitness, A Father's Guide to Family Health. What is your your overall advice here for a guy who has, let's just say he's a, a divorced father and it falls into, the I think, a lot of the, I don't want to call it a trap exactly, but a, a pattern of, that a lot of guys do is you don't really realize quite how important the kids were, quite how much you, how much interaction you have with them until you don't have that anymore. That how do you help a guy who does not see his kids that often prepare for getting involved and maintaining? I mean, do, doing the kind of thing that I think it was such a, a, a beautiful moment. You talked about, about the, the daughter who lives out of state who calls her dad. I mean, how do you get that going so that even if dad is not around, that he really has an, an, you know, so that you as the father really have uh, an influential role? Well, obviously a lot depends on the context before the separation occurred, assuming that the father, so there are lots of different family dynamics. So the child may or may not have lived with the father. If the child has lived with the father for a period of time, then presumably, especially if he's been involved, they've developed some rituals and routines that they may be able to build on so that's important. It's also important to think about, well, how old is the child when we're talking about this non-resident father? And so the needs of very young children are somewhat different than older children. So if it's a young child who's only two or three or four or five, then having overnight experiences are extremely important. And those are, in terms of bonding and affection, uh, research shows that that's uh, really a critical kind of experience for young children to sustain their bonds uh, with a non-resident parent. And so in those instances, a father with a very young child can, and I would encourage the, the father to be very actively involved in the nighttime ritual and the morning ritual and, and making breakfast and being attentive to if, if the child has any health care needs, if the child takes any medications to be very aware of what those are and not to just allow the resident parent to be in charge of that, especially if they're overnights, then the father should be very well informed about any medical protocols that are going on and being attentive to those kinds of things, trying to be a person to the extent uh, that the person has a pretty decent co-parenting relationship being involved in pediatrician visits is I think extremely important to, develop that sense of continuity with the child, that the child knows that the father is involved in those kinds of meetings and is present as often as possible, 
and is connecting to other people in the child's life so the child sees the, the father as an advocate and someone who knows about the child's history. So when the father and the child go to a pediatrician, the father knows what's going on in the child's life and is able to give a, a good uh, health history for the child. If you're talking about older children who may have lived with their father for 10 or 12 years and it's a later separation, then remaining active in the child's life with overnights uh, can still be very important but may not be as critical for the child's sense of bonding to the father. And in, that, in those instances, then staying in contact with the child through text messaging and, and just sending uh, phone calls, texts, doing, you know, using modern technologies to stay in touch with the child and to be aware of what's going on in the child's life, encouraging the child, especially if the father is fitness-oriented, trying to go to the gym together or bike together, run together, go to parks sure. together, um, go to the grocery store together, cook together, uh, do various things that are health-oriented that uh, you know, an adolescent child or a teenager mm -hmm. can easily do with a father and sort of process those rituals. And hopefully those rituals were a part of their life earlier. If they weren't, then a father could still, you know, uh, bring those up and try to navigate kind of a new uh, family dance with his daughter or with his son and create some new activities that weren't really a part of their life before. Now, how do you do that, though, if you are uh, not in particularly good shape? And, you know, how are you going to be setting an example for your child? Is this one uh, of these, uh, you know, do do as I do right. or don't do as right. I do, do as I say kind of things? Um, well, that definitely makes it harder. Uh, so being a good, healthy role model is easier when you are also, you know, walking the walk. But there are some dads who, and in some cases, dads may not be healthy for reasons um, not of their own choosing. So I interviewed men who you know, acquired MS or had cancer or had other things that were not really um, things that they brought on themselves. Clearly, I interviewed men who drank too much by their own admission or smoked or, or did other things that they had control over, at least, you know, depending upon how you define addiction, but they, it was different than just, you know, acquiring MS. But right, that's in, a different thing. E, right. Even if they are not in good health, uh, in some cases, the fathers I talked to, for example, said, you don't want to become me. You don't want to end up like I am uh, when you're 45 or 50. And so they, in some ways, talked about their, and were very open, uh, sort of like the scared straight kind of approach in the criminal justice system where the father said, you know, this is what I did. I made all these mistakes. Now you see what's going on with me. You don't want to be in this spot. You don't want to start the, you know, you don't want to go down this path because you're going to end up like me. And I'll do everything I can to try to, you know, persuade you not to do that. That's, you know, a yeah. harder road to go. But there were some men who I felt at least, you know, I didn't talk to the kids, so I don't know for sure, but I felt like they at least uh, were making an attempt to reach out to their children and talk to them and, and open up the lines of communication yeah. and to give, you know, kids opportunities. So whether it was with their money, sending them to different, uh, you know, sports camps or taking them different places that, 
or being an advocate for them in terms of health-related issues. So they could still, in some ways, contribute, um, but whether the children got the message as fully as they would have if the fathers had been in great health right. or lived a healthy life, it's, it's hard to say. Now, and I would imagine not so. What about the other side of that, the dad who is pushing the kids beyond where they really could be pushed or where they really should be pushed, somebody who may be falling into the trap that, that we all fall into at some point or other, kind of trying to live our lives out through our kids' accomplishments or something like that. Uh, how, how do you, what do you tell these guys about backing off somewhat? That's a, that's a really important question, definitely one that I personally have to ask myself uh, a lot of times. Um, and I, th- I think you just have to encourage uh, people to try to take a step back and to see what's... Uh, and this is tricky because kids' personalities are so different, and, and then some kids... I would ask, you know, how well do you know your child? And some kids want to be pushed or can be pushed and don't even, but they don't fully recognize it and they have maybe a coping mechanism to deal with it. Others truly shouldn't be pushed. And if a father isn't attentive enough, attentive enough to knowing what the child's threshold is, then you definitely can get into a problem. So I would encourage those dads to try to be introspective and think about, you know, why are they encouraging their children to do what they're doing? To what extent are they uh, wanting just to spend time with them in a certain way? Are the kids happy? How often are the kids happy? Are the kids making choices about what they're choosing to do in terms of uh, what sports they're playing? Or, um, I mean, I'm pretty okay, though, with parents not necessarily forcing, but really encouraging healthy eating and not allowing children to eat a lot of junk food or any junk food for that matter. And But that's a little different than like living your life out, you know, or your ambition. Well, it's more about the sports life. dreams and, you know, you're going to get out there because I know you can do it or because I did it and I was great. It's, you know, the stories you hear about Jim Thorpe. Right. And, you know, pushing pushing his kids. There's, there's there's hundreds and hundreds of examples right. of the the obnoxious uh, sports parent who all too often seems to be the dad. Unfortunately, um, I guess because there's probably a lot more. Again, as you as you talked about in the very beginning about the the concept of masculinity, that that there's a lot of performance aspects to being a dad, I and mean, that's how we we often grow up seeing ourselves as whether we've accomplished certain things or caught a touchdown pass or done something spectacular. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't, it makes it almost worse because you want your kid to be able to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think think there's some truth to that. And in terms of literature, there tends to be, in recent decades, kind of two paths to sports fathering. And one is sort of the old school that you are kind of alluding to now, and then what's called a more inclusive kind of fathering where fathers are – are trying to take that step back and be introspective and think about uh, kind of the politics of being a father and of not uh, pushing their children too much and of trying to encourage without being overbearing. And increasingly, more fathers are, are, I think, looking at that more inclusive style of fathering and adopting it even though their initial reaction 
may be to go in a different direction. But right. because more fathers are at least uh, self-reflective now about these things, and in some ways more communicative with other fathers, then there is some sort of checks and balances on that that they may have kind of an instinct to go in one direction, but then they pull back. Whereas in earlier generations, there was less that, of that self-reflection and self-talk about, you know, what kind of father do I want to be? What am I doing here? How am I relating to my fa- or my son or, or right, daughter? Right. My guest has been William Marsilio, who's the author of Dads, Kids, and Fitness, A Father's Guide to Family Health. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, you had some social media things. What are those? Um, I have a Dads and Kids Health and Fitness Talk website that I just started to sort of uh, build up, and it has opportunities for dads as well as moms and kids of all ages to explore different health and fitness-related resources. Uh, There are a lot of games for kids and then information for dads and moms, as well as there's a a section for teachers, healthcare providers, faith leaders, who people in the community who work with kids. And what I'm trying to do is create partnerships uh, between fathers and community folks who are working with kids to get fathers. Because a big thing of how I think about fathering is that fathers need to be more involved in children's lives outside of the home and connected to the people who are involved in, in their children's lives. All right. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Thank you. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment, and we've got one for you on education. Dear Mr. Dad, my daughter is in second grade at a wonderful school, and we get a lot of email asking for parent volunteers to help out in the classroom or to do cleanups, fundraising, and other stuff to help the school. Almost all of that email is directed at mothers and makes a special point of explaining how important it is for mothers to take an active role in their kids' education. As a really involved, hands-on kind of dad, this really bugs me. I want to complain to the school, but I'd like to bring in some evidence that shows that it's important for dads to be involved, too. Can you help? Well, there is no shortage of studies that prove that parents, meaning mom and dad, make a difference. In fact, the more parents are involved, the better the kids do. Unfortunately, far too many schools use the word parents as a synonym for moms. Ignoring dads in this way, even if it's unintentional, does more damage than simply shortchanging our children. You need proof? Well, when dads get involved, they're sending a clear message that they care about their kids and value education. Their children, in turn, first of all, have better problem-solving skills, are more persistent and confident, and are more interested in exploring the world around them. They do better on standardized tests. They've got better math and verbal scores and score higher on IQ and other intelligence tests. They perform better in school and have a lot more fun while they're there. About half of kids with involved dads get mostly A's compared to only about a third when dads are not involved. In fact, dad's level of involvement is a better predictor than mom's that a child will get top grades. Kids with involved dads are less than half as likely to have ever repeated a grade. That's 7% versus 15% for children of less involved dads. That was according to a survey sponsored by the National Center for Education Statistics, or NCES. 
kids aren't nearly half as likely to have ever been suspended. That's 10% versus 18% for those less in, kids of less involved dads. Kids are more likely to be involved in extracurricular activities. On average, children who have interests outside of school have fewer behavior problems and are less likely to get involved with drugs or alcohol or become teen parents than those with no outside activities. Finally, the kids are more likely to become responsible adults, have fulfilling careers, and have solid marriages. Pretty impressive, wouldn't you say? Better still, these wonderful benefits from father involvement happen whether the dad is married, single, or a stepfather, an adoptive father, or lives with his children or not, according to the University of Illinois researcher Brent McBride. And that is just the beginning. When dads are involved in their children's schools, the dads themselves tend to be more involved at home. Learn a lot of great stuff. The NCES study found that when parents are actively involved in their kids' schools, they are more likely to visit museums and libraries, participate in cultural activities with their children, and have high educational expectations for them. The dads feel more confident and more important as parents. Being involved in their children's schools helps dads understand that they're just as important in their children's lives as moms are. Last but not least, schools benefit from fathers' involvement, too. Involved parents tend to have a higher opinion of teachers and give them more support. Not surprisingly, teacher morale is higher, and the schools have better reputations in the community. So next time you get an email asking for moms to volunteer, send back a link to this column, and then call up a few other dads and make sure you are first in line. If you've got a question or a comment or a concern for us or some feedback on this segment or any other that we've done here at Positive Parenting, please do drop us a line. That would be at MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you and a whole other show, in fact. Hey, but don't go yet. You know what's coming up. There's a whole other big piece of Positive Parenting right on the horizon. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. Green light. Hey girl, school zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Braun. Most people are driven to win, whether it's in competitive sports, political or artistic endeavors, academic prestige, or any number of pursuits that require talent and perseverance and persistence. The desire to win has driven humanity's most talented individuals to produce incredible achievements and to excel beyond even their highest expectations. However, this fixation on winning can also hurt our ability to succeed in the long run. Like a lot of parents, 
author and award-winning sports journalist Sam Weinman noticed how this obsessive need to win was preventing his sons from coping with inevitable losses in life, such as bombing a test or botching a tennis match. Weinman decided that his kids needed some important perspective. After all, no one likes a sore loser. Over his career and life, he'd seen how many of the greats in the worlds of sports or Hollywood or politics and business have weathered crushing defeats and survived to tell their tales. So he decided to write a book about how celebrated public figures are able to bounce back after epic losses. We're going to be talking with Sam Wyman about his new book and, more importantly, about what we can do to understand the importance of losing and how we can turn our losses into gains that will make our life even better than we thought it could be. It all starts right after this. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Sam Weinman, who's the author of Win at Losing, How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains. Sam, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, this is a topic that comes up with remarkable frequency on this show and in and a lot of the other stuff I do about the importance of failure. Mm-hmm. And talk a little bit about how you happen to get into this. Well, in my yeah, in my case, it was very much uh, a personal challenge. I got two boys, and they're both very competitive little athletes. Uh, and by competitive, I don't mean they're at a high level necessarily, but just very, very involved in outcomes. And um, often, you know, we're dejected by by losing. And in my case, it was something that just became a recurring challenge. And I felt like I constantly was trying to impress upon them that this is actually a good thing, that losing is, uh, is an opportunity to get better. It helps you, you know, address weaknesses that you might have. It's, uh, it leaves you a little hungry, which you might not be if you're always winning. And that was a difficult sell for a long time, and so I kind of wanted to dig in deeper. Now, obviously, I, I saw an opportunity um, you know, because it was such a recurring theme with kids and just in society in general that the need to learn how to lose is such a big such a big challenge and such an important um, skill, I think. So I, I kind of went from there, and, and you know, my my way of diving in was by not just looking at kids, but also just in, you know every segment of society, sports, politics, business, all those things, where it was something that ended up being good for people. Yeah, you know, I, I should note that on the cover, the very top is a, a blurb from Carol Dweck, and yes. people may not recognize the name, but I mean, we've talked about Carol on the show. I actually would like to get her on the show, but she's the one who did the studies about the the f- fifth graders and math, and some of them were Correct. being told that you did a great job, some were being told you you uh, were smart, and some were being told that that uh, that they had worked hard. 
and the difference that that does. And so what you're, you're essentially talking about the same thing, that the, the value of hard work and the bumps that come along the road to whatever it is are, are more than made up for by the work that you're doing. Completely. I mean, I, I think Tarbleck's, uh, you know, sort of studies and writings about this have been really influential in kind of help, helping people wrap their brain around what we should be emphasizing with our kids. And for our kids, it shouldn't be that, you know, they're the best or that they have this great talent or skill, but it should be about the emphasis on that you can work hard and you can achieve better outcomes by constantly embracing challenge and applying yourself. Yeah. And uh, that's why she's a big believer that praise uh, or praising intelligence or talent is really counterproductive because then you become somewhat complacent in your belief that, well, it's just going to come easy to me because I have this natural ability. Right, right. I think most people would, at least if they're asked in, in a good moment of the day, would agree that it, that there's some value to losing and that we all have lost and we've all overcome things. But I'm wondering, you, you came at this from the perspective of being a sports journalist. Mm-hmm. That seems to me, particularly on a professional level, where this almost doesn't apply, that you that, that there may be some value in losing or there may have been some value in losing when you were in high school or maybe college, but if you're a pro... There's no value in losing. I mean, you're going to lose endorsements. You're going to you're sure. going to not make as much money. I mean, that, that's that's like a whole different area. It seems. Would it, you... it is. I mean, I covered the National Hockey League for for a bunch of years before I moved to Golf Digest, and one of the things they used to say is, "We're in a results business," which was a way of saying that you know we could play the best games in the world, but if we don't win the game, it doesn't matter. But I do think that um, if you look at it through the prism of Losing helps you get better over the course of a season. You know, if you're a hockey team, for instance, and you lose a game in October, that is uh, instructive and beneficial for you. Uh, you know, the next night out and over the course of the season. So in that way, losing is hugely beneficial. Or even taking it a step further, if a team is a, has a losing season one year, those are the things that crystallize where they need to be better, and it ultimately helps them. Um, you know, address areas that they need to, to be better at. I mean, the great example is um, the NBA, the Chicago Bulls, in Michael Jordan's first three or four years in the league, they lost every year to the Detroit Pistons in the um, Eastern Conference Finals or in the playoffs. And it was, you know, there very instructive about what kind of team they needed to be. They saw in the Pistons things that were glaring, you know, glaringly missing from their games. And so it ended up being one of the main things that led them to being a, a dynasty because they saw where they needed to be better. So, of course, yes, losing, you know, on an individual basis is, you know, not what anyone in profession, is in professional sports for, but even there it has great value to people you know, over, a, over a longer period. So you began to take a look at people from all different walks of life. I mean, politicians, you've got Michael Dukakis, you've got the a soap opera star, Susan Lucci. Right. Uh, actually, <laughs> it's sort of embarrassing. I remember when it, when I was in, after grad school, I was struggling to find a job and somehow managed to find myself in front of uh, all my children. <laughs> and and I just like it became somehow addicted to the whole thing, in which I had to tear myself away. But Susan Lucci, for those who don't know or probably do know <laughs> at this point, uh, was on all my children. <laughs> like. Right. But she, she was, I don't know how many years it was, 20-something years that she was nominated and never won. Correct. She finally did win, though, right? She For, did. Actually, it was 18 years that she lost, and then the 19th year 
she finally won. It was this great kind of breakthrough moment. So, uh, you know, if, if you're her, and, and you asked her this, you know, it's like, why would you even go to the awards dinner when sure. the odds are pretty much against you? Right. And I think, you know, in her case, it was an example of losing with class and showing respect for the competition that you've entered. You know, it's this whole idea that even when you lose and nothing good comes out of it, there's a way to be graceful about it. And she showed that in, in a lot of ways. I think she endeared herself to a whole segment of fans who probably didn't know anything about soap operas, but just saw someone who was constantly losing and handling it with class. And I think there's something to be said for that. That's a, another good lesson for our kids. Is sometimes there might not be any you know, readily apparent lesson, but it's important to um, handle it gracefully, and she did that well. And so what lessons does she have? For everyone else about this kind of this kind yeah. of thing about, you know, there's certainly going to be the never give up, never give up. But what's deeper there for her? I think so. Well, I think that's a big part of it was was like I said, it was showing the persistence of putting yourself out there year after year. And, she, and you know, she was put in the Emmys and she she um, just made didn't become disenchanted with this whole process of being nominated for the Emmys. She put herself out there every year. Uh, I do think that in her case, she actually did learn a few things about why she was losing. You know, she, you know, it's a very um, small thing, but it can be applied to any walk of life. Which was when she took a hard look at the the clips that she was submitting for for uh, you know the nomination, she saw that she had a tick in her performances. Like she would look down a lot at the floor, and it was something that disrupted her connection with the audience and with other actors, and it was something she was able to address. She saw, okay, so that's why I'm losing. That's why, that's what's holding me back, and she saw an opportunity to address that. So obviously, very few of us are going to be uh, acting in soap operas and nominating ourselves for daytime Emmys, but we can recognize things that are holding us back that we're not doing well, that um, when we lose, those things are brought to the fore, and we're able to correct them. Well, you mentioned you, you're writing for Golf Digest, and one of the chapters is on Greg Norman, and, you, and you're talking about how he won fans by losing, essentially. So talk about that, what, what that was about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's similar in a way to Susan Lucci in the sense that by a lot of measures, Greg Norman was exorbitantly successful. You know, he was a, still a number one player in the world and, and um, won millions of dollars playing golf, and in that way, he's very inaccessible to a lot of people. However, he had this one tournament, the Masters, that he desperately wanted to win. It's arguably the most important tournament in golf and had a number of uh, very close calls and lost. And then the, the most heartbreaking was 1996. He had a six-shot lead going into the final round and people were pretty much assuming that it was a done deal, that he was definitely going to win. And he had this nightmare Sunday so, you know, final round where he played terribly and, and you know played for four and a half hours on national TV where everyone's watching him sort of seeing his dreams uh, you know dashed right in front of everyone's eyes and he handled it very gracefully and gave credit where it was due and owned up to the mistakes that he made that day and how he wasn't prepared to win and in that moment this guy who is very um, you know uh, superstar became very human to people because it was something they could identify with um, in the same way that, you know, they can't, people can't identify with, you know, trying to win a daytime Emmy. They can understand, though, that it's something that you desperately want that you don't get, and you have to, you have to, you know, own that moment, and he did very much, and that was part of what made him very human to a lot of people. 
Talking with Sam Weinman, who's the author of Win at Losing, How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking about losing. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Sam Weinman, who's the author of Win at Losing, How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains. So saying to our kids there's there's a benefit to losing and that everybody makes mistakes and that you learn lessons and it makes you better and pointing to some of these cases is one thing, and it makes some intuitive sense and, and it makes us feel that we're being good parents. But still in the back of our minds, many people in their jobs, you, you don't want to fail. How, how, do we, how do we learn to walk the walk and not just talk the talk on this thing? It's an excellent point, and I think it's important to understand, first of all, that this sort of knee-jerk disappointment you're going to have is inevitable. You know, even the most enlightened of us who lose are going to lose, um, and we're going to be disappointed by it. I think one of the things that we need to understand is that everything should be, you know, everything should be considered a process that, you know, that, you know, these, these momentary setbacks are, are moments and they, they come and go and there are opportunities to, to learn from them and to see where we can be better. Um, and it also should sort of help fuel some, some determination on our end. You know, when we have these moments of disappointment, hopefully those disappointments are what, motivates us to work harder and um, apply ourselves further. I think, you know, one of the things I always say in the book is, you know, um, losing well is not about being immune to disappointment. It's just about channeling that disappointment into something positive, and that's the key. It's not, it's not, we're not trying to sugarcoat the, you know, the, the, the emotions here that we have when you lose. It's just finding a way to be constructive about it. Okay. And it's also finding a way to let your kids see you fail is that is that even a possible thing yeah it's completely i think you know these are great opportunities to show your kids look this didn't go the way i wanted it to go but i'm gonna find something positive out of this that i can use and build on it and it's about you know showing them that it's it happens to mom and dad that you know no one is immune from these these things and it's just a part of life and the better we can handle these moments the more we can show our kids that you know, it's a it's a skill that you you always have. You know, you, you know you, you lose in in little league, then you lose when you're you know when you're older and your business doesn't go as well as you want, or whatever the whatever the episode is. These are all moments that that are going you're going to confront on a frequent basis. You know, even for the luckiest of, of us. And so, being able to show that we are able to, whether in a again constructive way. Uh, is far better than just you know blaming or deflecting or just being angry, which really doesn't get us anywhere. Right. I mean, just the anger or the depression or whatever, and withdrawing from the whole thing doesn't sure. help because you got to get back in there anyway. That's exactly that's just the way life is going to be. Yeah. So you, you talk about not only that there are benefits to losing, but that there may be some drawbacks to winning, and certainly not on a global level. And you know, we mentioned Carol Dweck. What sure. what do you mean? Give us a few more specifics yeah. about the kinds of things that the drawbacks to 
the, the winning part of things? Well, I think um, I alluded to this earlier, which is that when we are successful, we tend to not ask enough questions as to why. We just attribute it to good fortune or to our natural talent, our ability, and we're not paying attention to the work we put in that, that got us to that point. And there's a there's a tendency to grow complacent. So the example I always use, I always bring everything back to sports, is that when teams are winning, they might be winning games, but there still might be some things that they could be better at. And they tend to, when things, when they're, when things are, when they're successful, they tend to gloss over those mistakes because they don't need to feel the need to deal with them. Um, so winning, you know, fosters this area of, or this air of superiority of, of, you know, we got it all figured out. And that's really the worst possible attitude to have because, um, you know, again, this whole growth mindset, it should be that, um, we're looking to learn from every opportunity, even, even when we're successful, we can find things that we can be better at and we can uh, embrace the challenge of, of trying to be better at it. You know, it's interesting, as you're saying that, I was thinking of uh, a friend of my parents, somebody that I grew up with, a very, very close friend of the family, who was a professional musician on a very high level and or founded orchestras and was very, very involved, particularly in, in the classic music and, and theater scenes. And she mm-hmm. mentioned something to me at one point, which I, I always thought was was fascinating, that she said that the worst thing that could ever happen to an orchestra or a theater company is to be sold out for every performance. That yeah. that what if they aren't selling out, they're going to do everything they can to be able to sell out. But if they sell at every performance, they can just get sloppy and think that we're great, we don't need to do anything. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's, uh, I mean, so the, the less why I'm saying this is that, that this applies way beyond sports. This applies to, to many other things in life as well, which... That, that's a that's a perfect example. I mean, uh, Dweck in her book um, says a very similar thing about a, uh, a chef who runs a, a restaurant that has I don't know what the I forget what the Michelin ratings are, but five stars is the best. It was a five star restaurant restaurant by the Michelin Guide, and so it, the only thing that they had nowhere to go, there was no room for improvement. So there, you like you said, there's a there's a tendency to get sloppy when you're in those moments, whereas when you're four stars or four and a half stars, there's this great determination to improve upon that and get better. So how do you begin to implement this or put this to use in your own life? I mean, not everybody's going to go work for Google or Facebook where they have kind of failure labs where they just throw everything at the wall and hope something sticks. So, But most people are not going to have that that sure. close interaction with repetitive failure. So how, how do you begin to put this into play? Well, I think... For starters, um, the biggest thing is a sense of honesty. Like in whatever the endeavor is, if it's your if it's your business, it's a it's a moment of uh, brutal honesty with the work you're putting in and whether you are doing, uh, you know, working as hard as you can. And if there are shortcomings in whatever it is you're doing, um, being completely being completely clear-eyed about that and seeing where you can be better. So that's that's the first thing. It's just having a having a having an appreciation for um, the 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 opportunity to be to be better and um, you know because there's no one who can look at themselves and say I'm, I'm perfect I, there's, you know I can't I can't get any better so that's the first thing and again it's I think what I said earlier is like there's a million little what we call micro failures that we deal with um, you know day to day or week to week and it's taking those moments and trying to find an opportunity to learn from them and and apply it to the next time out so 
those are those are the biggest things. And um, you know, I, I, as I as I mentioned earlier, I think uh, a huge part of it is you know when we're talking about with our kids is is really just being faithful to that message of these you know these little setbacks are are ultimately going to be good for us and 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 helpful and so being positive about it as opposed to being dejected or demoralized or um you know cynical about things going wrong you should instead embrace it as an opportunity so of all the stories in the book what was your most inspiring or your favorite one here you know, I've gotten that question a few times, and I, I, it's hard for me to say so, and I, I know that's an evasive answer. There's a bunch. I, I, the one I really like is um, at, the, at the, the way into the back book, there's a story of a fellow named Ralph Cox, who was the last guy cut from the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. So as you may know, that was this great moment in sports history where they went on to the Miracle on Ice. They won. It was, you know, people say it was the greatest moment in, in sports where the United States beat the Soviets. Well, this guy was with that team for the first six months, and then he was cut. Um, about a month and a half out before the Olympics. And so in a lot of ways, he was deprived this opportunity to be part of this, and he was basically relegated to obscurity. So here's a guy who's now, it's coming up on 40 years later, and he looks at it as this great uh, moment for him because he was he was part of it. It forced him to go through a very dark period in his life, and he looks at it as a very positive thing for him because he was able to work through this, this moment in his life and... and um, actually look at it as a positive and which is in my mind very inspiring because it's an example of someone who um you know he didn't have any he didn't have a great follow-up success he didn't go on to play in the national hockey league or anything like that but he just was able to frame this event in his life in a very positive way which i think is a very powerful thing wonder how that applies to somebody like the the quarterback who i can't remember exactly what happened to him but he he was pulled and tom brady went in and, sure. you know, to, who hasn't yet to get off the field except for that year where he was injured. Yes, but, right. You know, so you, you've got to be thinking, man, I just yeah. blew it here somehow. You know, Completely. Couple, so that was, a, yeah, you're right, it was a Drew Bledsoe, who, you know, and he had a fine career in he, the NFL. He didn't yep. do badly for himself either, that's right. He didn't do badly for himself, but that's a great thing, which is like, here's a guy who could be really bitter about this situation where he had his job taken from him and he didn't become the star that Tom Brady became but I you know I, you know without being inside Drew Bledsoe's head I would say he should choose to be grateful that he was in the National Football League and then he was able to play and that yeah whatever those you know whatever those things are in the same way that a Ralph Cox found something found a way to frame it which is a word you hear once more, like frame it in a way that that is honest but also allows you to come kind of, it's more palatable to you Sam Wyman's the author of Win at Losing, How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains. Sam, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.